Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care. The Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, PNC, Grow Up Great. The New Jersey Economic Development Authority, Summit Health, a provider of primary, specialty, and urgent care. United Airlines, the New Jersey Education Association. NJM Insurance Group, serving New Jersey's drivers, homeowners, and business owners for more than 100 years. And by Choose New Jersey. Promotional support provided by New Jersey Family Magazine, a resource for New Jersey parents. And by BestOfNJ.com, all New Jersey in one place. Welcome to Think Tank. I'm Steve Adubato with our co-anchor, executive producer, Nicole Swinnerton. Nicole, we have four terrific guests on Think Tank today. Let's line it up. Sure. So first, we're joined by Vicki Hernandez, who's the head of the Ironbound Community Corporation. Next up, we have Dr. Jessica Israel, um, who's senior vice president of geriatrics and palliative care at RWJ Barnabas Health. Then we have Megan Tavermina, the head of New Jersey Association for the Education of Young Children. And then we have Professor Marie Mullaney, um, who's a specialist in women's history and professor at Caldwell University. We have a stacked show today. Yeah, that last segment, and by the way, they're all terrific segments, but Professor Mullaney, fascinating. She was saying, listen, women's history should not only be a month, let's celebrate women's history, and they shouldn't be the same people that are celebrated. We should go beyond political history and talk about all kinds of other women. That, that got you, right? Absolutely. Connected with that. Absolutely. I totally respect her point of view, and women's history should be just part of regular history. Yep. And speaking of history, those who are keeping us from becoming extinct. That was a terrible segue. Our funders are? We would love to thank the Turrell Fund supporting Reimagine Childcare, Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, PNC Bank, and the New Jersey Economic Development Authority. Thank you to all of our sponsors. That's Nicole. I'm Steve, and this is Think Tank. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato. Welcome to another compelling, important program that looks at a whole range of issues. And we kick off with Vicki Hernandez, Executive Director of Ironbound Community Corporation, based in beautiful Brick City, Newark, New Jersey. Vicki, great to have you with us. Thank you, Steve. Vicki, could you let everyone know what the Ironbound Community Corporation is and why it matters now more than ever? Yeah, I'm happy to. So Ironbound Community Corporation is a community-based grassroots organization that has been based in the Ironbound for 52 years. And we do a combination of advocacy and organizing work that has been at the core of who we are since the very start and a range of social services and youth and family programming that spans from uh, serving children, uh, infants and toddlers to, um, to adults. Mm -hmm. So let's try this. Um, obviously COVID has impacted all of our lives. What can and what can't you do remotely? Well, there's some things we can do remotely. So our finance team, for example, is remote. A lot of our back offices are still remote, but absolutely we are uh, a community-based organization and we have to be on the ground serving our community members. 
And so there is a lot of work that we do in person and have been doing in person um, since, um, since the start of the pandemic, really since April. Um, one of those things has been emergency food relief, which we do um, extensively. Uh, but a lot of our work is in person. We have to do it very carefully and try to protect the safety of our community members and our staff. But um, we really have no other choice. That's how our community members connect with us and we have to be there for them. And so we are, we find ways to do that. You know, we're involved, as you well know, with an initiative called Reimagine Child Care, um, <clears throat> affordable, accessible child care, particularly in urban underserved communities. You're in the Ironbound section of Newark. You and your team have been involved in childcare for many years. What does the childcare situation look like in the Ironbound? Well, it's um, it's incredibly difficult. You know, we ex we we began to see this really early on in the um, in the pandemic, where um, you know many of our community members don't have the luxury of doing remote work uh, the way that you know many people in uh, suburban communities might be able to do it. They are frontline workers. They are um, you know, uh, do you know, doing day labor jobs, and so uh, the option to work from home does not exist for them. And so, um, childcare has been a huge need for them. Right, schools have been remote in Newark um, until recently, right, and they're not entirely um, in person now. They're still operating on a hybrid model, and so. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've done is uh, we opened a remote learning site where parents can bring their kids to our site and they come uh, come to us and do remote schooling from uh, from from our Lafayette Avenue location. Um, but it's been incredibly hard. I think that, um, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in addition to the need for parents to to be, you know, out and working and need a safe place for child care, our families have faced a lot of um, other challenges in the pandemic. So the ability to navigate this virtual world has been really, um, really, really challenging for, um, for a lot of folks, whether it's been access to the internet or just the ability to navigate the virtual world has, has really been detrimental to them and, and detrimental to our kids as well. You know, Vicki, so much of our work since March of 2020 has been focusing on the work of not-for-profits like yours making a huge difference, particularly in these difficult times. But one of the areas that has been so critically important is vaccine, vaccine resistance, vaccine acceptance. What are you finding in the community you serve, particularly as it relates to those who are either hesitant or all out resistant yeah, to the vaccine? You know I'm happy to answer that. You know, I think that we saw very early on in December when, um, the vaccines were originally um, approved, that there was more resistance then. Um, and I think that's understandable. There, there you know, it, it, it was new. Um, we don't see the same kind of resistance now. You don't. The, the biggest, yeah, I would say that the biggest barrier that we see right now is, is ease of access, not even access, but ease of access, right? So, um, you know, uh, you know, many of the ways that, uh, that folks, um, register to get the vaccine. They have to go online. They have to provide um, a lot of information. Uh, you know, there's a hesitancy around that or an inability, an inability to navigate that environment in order to be able to do that. So recently, two Saturdays ago, we hosted a, um, a pop-up vaccination site with the Department of the Newark Department of Health. 
Um, and we had an, an unbelievable turnout. 575 people came out to get vaccinated on that day. And that was just a, a week's worth of registering people, right? Um, call, you know, talking to folks on the phone, helping them to fill out their forms, right? Uh, the, the online piece was not a barrier. The appointment was not a barrier. Um, we had um, uh, slots available that day. So even if folks weren't registered, they could come up and do it. And so that ease of access really is critical. We could have stayed open for hours and hours longer um, but, you know, just couldn't couldn't keep going that day, uh, but plan to do more of these back these pop up vaccination days in our community, because we really feel that that is the best way to reach people in our community. Vicki, as difficult as this pandemic has been for so many, if it were not, we're not for not pro nonprofits like yours making a difference, particularly in underserved communities, it would be that much worse. Vicki Hernandez, executive director, Iron Brown Community Corporation. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. I'm Steve Adubato. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato. New Jersey's early educators and child care providers are more than twice as likely to live below the poverty line versus the general workforce. If we want our children to be successful, we need to increase the investment in the people who care for them. It is time to build back better by reimagining the way we support these essential providers. Learn more about the Reimagine Childcare campaign by visiting the website at reimaginechildcare.org. We're now joined by Dr. Jessica Israel, who is Senior Vice President of Geriatrics and Palliative Care at RWJ Barnabas Health. Doctor, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, excited to be here. Let me ask you this. In your view, geriatrics and palliative care, first of all, could you define palliative care and how is it different from hospice? So that is, that's a great question, one that a lot of people ask. I'm going to start with the definition that I that I came to New Jersey with when I left New York. I was uh, early into palliative care, and a mentor of mine said, when you come to Jersey, how are you going to explain to people what palliative care is? And she told me to say, um, it's good medical care for patients with serious medical illness. And that that's the way that I think about it. But essentially, it is for patients with serious medical illness, it is impeccable treatment. Uh, um, uh, early recognition and careful treatment of symptoms, as well as expert communication about goals of care and medical decision-making. And it looks at not just the physical sense, but someone's spiritual sense of well-being, their emotional sense of well-being, the world outside them, their families, people that they love, and how a serious medical illness fits in or doesn't fit in with all that. Palliative care has changed in one way, very significant way it's changed in the face of COVID is? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that the difference is executives at hospitals understand what palliative care is all about now. And so do patients, because very, very quickly, this field and the expertise got pushed to the forefront. 
we really needed expert communication, um, especially and expert symptom management early in the surge of the disease and now, especially when patients and families are separated because of visitor restrictions. There needs to be someone who can communicate exactly what's happening and talk about goals of care with families and patients, and in this case, across uh, significant borders. Doctor, you know, the whole idea of geriatrics, you know, and I, I know this because my dad was sick for a very long time, treated by folks at your place, um, and then died in the, passed in the, in the fall of 2020 after a long illness. And so we're very connected to not just geriatrics, but, you know, palliative care and hospice as well. But the reason I'm raising this is that it seems to me with COVID disproportionately affecting older people that palliative care becomes even more important than ever before, correct? I think it's such a great point, Steve. I'm glad you brought it up. I think in, in the beginning of palliative care, and so in some cases, this even happens hospital, in hospitals now, the crisis of hospitalization brings, brings up the need for this kind of communication. But really, patients are much better served if we can take the communication part out of a crisis and move it upstream. Everyone with a serious medical illness has an opportunity to talk about their goals of care before moments of pressure. And in many cases, this prevents mo moments of pressure. So especially the communication piece belongs way upstream of an emergency. What is in fact the palliative care collaborative, what is it exactly? Mm -hmm. So that's something uh, particular to RWJ Barnabas Health. So the palliative care collaborative is our system's approach to bringing together the teams across our 12 different hospitals. So palliative care teams can range in size. Sometimes it's one or two professionals, uh, maybe a nurse practitioner or a physician, and sometimes it's a team of you know six to eight people, including social work support and different uh, different power professionals. So the palliative care collaborative in the system is the leaders in palliative care on these teams coming together on a regular basis to learn from each other. And I would say even more importantly, to support each other. This is, a, it's a tough thing to face serious medical illness every day. And sometimes people need mentorship and support. And when teams are small, that's hard to find at your home site. So this sort of extends that network to, to really make us all practice better. Something I'm really proud of. And during the pandemic, it was the Palliative Care Collaborative that, that really very, very quickly put together 24 seven access for every provider in our system to palliative care um, through a telephone hotline we made phone calls to families at home on behalf of the physicians because of the workload to, to help along the way. We've written standardized order sets so that we can teach through the way that we recommend prescription uh, pay, uh, physicians and providers prescribe. So super proud of our effort in that. Final question, support for caregivers, critically important, correct? I think it is um, one of the most important things we can think about. You know, in palliative care, we think a lot about, about emotional support for providers who work in different spaces. But I would say even in that field, it's the kind of thing we, we talk about at the end of a meeting or it's the last hour of, uh, of a weekend thing, but something that I really think we need to move forward. And the, the pandemic has taught us a lot about that. Being in these spaces is difficult and 
physicians in particular are not really great at talking about that difficulty. And sometimes you have to push it for that to come out a little bit. Important work, Dr. Jessa, Jessica Israel, Senior Vice President of Geriatrics and Palliative Care at RWG Varmus Health. And they are in fact a significant supporter of public broadcasting and the work we do. Uh, doctor, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You got it, we'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato. We're honored to be joined by Megan Tabermina, who is president of the New Jersey Association for the Education of Young Children. Megan, good to have you with us. Thank you, it's nice to be here. Megan, part of our conversation, ongoing conversation, reimagine childcare, there's so many aspects of this, to this, but the one I wanna to get to that you've been telling our producers about, childcare workers are incredibly underpaid, right? Which creates this massive staffing crisis, talk about it. Absolutely. So we have um, seen so much highlight around childcare in um, the wake of the COVID pandemic. But the reality of it is, is that the workforce issues have started well before COVID um, came along. And now as the, as the pandemic has come in, it has exasperated these issues. And so there is a compounding um, thing that is happening where we don't have anybody interested in joining the industry because the pay is so terrible. And the qualified people that we do have are leaving the industry for better paying jobs in gen in the public school if they're qualified. And then we have this whole new sector that has come out with and with warehouses such like Costco and Amazon offering $18 an hour with great benefit packages that we are pooling for the same employees, which just shouldn't be because we are looking to develop a high quality early learning system here in New Jersey. And unless we fix this problem, we will never achieve that. So here's the thing I keep wondering about. In the American Rescue Plan, right? If there's $700 million dedicated to childcare, how much of that is going to pay childcare professionals and workers more? We still don't have the answer to that, but we're hoping that this is an opportunity, that right now there's a moment in time where we can change the dialogue for the early learning industry, not just here in New Jersey, but really across the country. And to be, and the best way to do that is to invest in our teachers. If we invest in our teachers and our early learning teachers, they will invest in New Jersey's children. And that has to be the core of how we step forward with this funding. It is an industry changing opportunity that we are looking at. And it is so important that we address the workforce compensation with this funding that is coming through. And that is our hopes that this will be at the top of the priority list as the funds are allocated. So let me try this one. The, the term reimagine childcare means different things to different people. What does it mean to you? To me, it really means rethinking the way that we prioritize childcare in the industry. And so that means 
recognizing that it is a pivotal part of our economic recovery. But at the same time, it is an, it is an even more important piece of a child's long-term development and their school success. So we have to be able to reimagine how we the, the importance that it has in the economic sphere, as well as the importance that it has in our, in our children's education. We have to do those two things alongside one another, not in separate directions. And in the time we have left, help folks understand why affordable, quality, accessible childcare is not simply an issue for the family members and, and, and professionals in the field, but for all of us? You know, the one thing that's so important for um, people in the field that we want everyone else to understand is that these are issues for us that were well before COVID-19. But the one thing that COVID-19 highlighted was the direct connection between childcare and the economic recovery. And so that, that really says it all right there. And, and real quick, your direct connection to Reimagine Childcare, the initiative, please share with everyone. So I've been fortunate enough um, to represent NJEYC as one of the partners alongside um, ACNJ to represent the, the, the Advocates for Children, children of, of New Jersey. Jersey. Yes, we Not are. Great friend Cecilia Zalkine and her team. Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, and we're, we were brought on, and I'm so thankful for it, to recognize that the workforce is one of the legs that stands up this industry. Megan, I want to thank you so much for joining us and to you and the team at the New Jersey Association for the Education of Young Children. We thank you for the work you're doing every day and we look forward to continuing the conversation. Um, by the way, real quick, I, I keep, I've said three times before I let you go, but I'm curious about this. How did you get connected to this and why do you care so much? I am a passionate advocate for the early learning um, profession. I've been in it for 20 years and for 20 years, um, you constantly feel like a second rate um, career. And, you know, so it's always been a passion of mine to build up um, myself and my colleagues to the important essential work that we do. And so that drove me into becoming, um, you know, a part of our professional organization, which is NJAYC, and through advocacy, and um, have been fortunate enough to serve as president um, over the past year and a half. Well said, Megan. Thanks so much. Thank you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We're now joined by Dr. Marie Mullaney, who is a professor of history and specialist in women's history at Caldwell University. Good to see you, Professor. Oh, it's great to see you too, Steve. So let, let's do this. You're not a fan of the way women's history is taught right now and the way we talk about it, because? Well, it depends on where it is being taught. If you're talking about the traditional Women's History Month that's celebrated in the public schools, I'm not a big fan of that. You know, certainly on the college level, I know it is taught much, much, much differently. So we're not talking about 
the college level. We're talking about, you know, every March uh, we trot out these women and we do these little biographies and the, the students probably hear about the same women over and over and over again until they get sick of hearing about the same women over and over again. So it's a problem, you know, we're glad and certainly happy that there is some learning taking place, but there's so much more to the history of women than that kind of biographical approach. And, and from your view, and by the way, let me disclose that I've done some teaching and continue to teach at the doctoral level at Coral University, a terrific place. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, what should we be focusing on, not just national leaders who happen to be women, but also in New Jersey? Please share, doctor. Well, what we should be focusing on in all of our classes is an inclusive approach to history. And that is what, I don't even know how I got that idea 45 years ago when I decided to go into this profession. But even when I was in college, I realized that history is stories of everyone. It's not just white men. It's not just white politicized women. In every one of our classes, we need to be inclusive and tell all different sorts of stories. So I teach about African-American history in every one of my American uh, history courses. And I teach about women, I think, in every single course that I teach. So I'm teaching Western civilization now. I teach about women wherever it is possible, whether it's talking about the, the Greek ideas about women or why women were excluded from politics for so many years. I mean, there just has to be a natural fit. And I also teach history of New Jersey. I mean, I'm constantly talking about women when and when and where it is appropriate. So I'm not saying you make these things up just to be condescending, not, not at all. But um, I've been teaching a very long time and I understand that what I am suggesting might not be possible for somebody right out of graduate school who's starting to teach, you know? But this, the more you learn about your discipline, you know uh, how to interweave these stories to get your students interested, whether it's women's history or African-American history, or right now I'm teaching a brand new course in the history of Hispanics in America. And it is just great. And yesterday I talked about Dolores Huerta, who is not as well known as Cesar Chavez. So that's right. You know, so so you do it everywhere you can. Um, I teach courses on the history of the Catholic Church and wherever possible, I integrate the stories of Catholic women, Catholic saints, Catholic sisters. Um, that's just the way I approach history. And, and, there are, uh, and excuse me, there are some religious women who don't get enough attention. Most religious women don't get any attention whatsoever. Um, and that's really unfortunate. I teach the history of American women. And one of the textbooks that I use is about 600 pages long. So it covers the whole gamut of women in America. I think there are two pages that talk about Catholic religious sisters, which is appalling, absolutely appalling. And why that is the case, we can discuss. But Catholic religious women have done so much. So I'm sh whenever I teach the Civil War, I make sure to talk about um, sisters, the women who were on the battlefield and served as nurses at that time. And when you talk about American holidays and why we have certain American holidays, I mean, the role that women, women played in that, whether it's Thanksgiving or Mother's Day or Memorial Day, believe it or not, Memorial Day was started by women in the American South. What year? 
oh my goodness, it was shortly after the Civil War, shortly after the Civil War, and it was called Decoration Day for decades. And women drove that. Excuse me? Women pushed that. Women led women that. pushed that. Women pushed that because they had lost so much. I mean, certainly North and South, but Southern women especially, especially lost so much of their lives. They lost their farms. They lost their plantations. They lost their status. They lost their workforce. Um, and, and it was a way of remembering. So I think we are wrong to focus on women in history from a political point of view and only a political point of view, that there's so many other women activists who serve, who come out, come to their contributions and their activism from this ethos of serving, which is what women traditionally have been taught to do. So you can poo-poo that, but it is greatly responsible for their contributions over the centuries. Uh, Professor, by the way, beyond Susan B. Anthony, who matters so much in our history, as uh, Dr. Mullaney has said, so many other women, a uh, compelling, important conversation. Dr. Marie Mullaney, I want to thank you. We, we wish you all the best. You just taught us a lot. Thank you, Professor. Thank you a lot. Pleasure to be here. You got it. I'm Steve Adubato. Thank you so much for watching. You know more about women's history now because of Dr. Mullaney. We'll catch you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting Reimagine Child Care, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, PNC, Grow Up Great, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, Summit Health, United Airlines, the New Jersey Education Association, NJM Insurance Group, and by Choose New Jersey. Promotional support provided by New Jersey Family Magazine and by bestofnj.com. High quality childcare for infants and toddlers is essential for working families, businesses, and the economy. An investment in childcare is an investment in the workforce. We have the opportunity to reimagine childcare by making it more affordable, accessible, and equitable. It's time to build back better. Learn more about the Reimagined Child Care campaign by visiting the website at reimaginedchildcare.org.